others in the church and in history in general. So when we think about Romans, there's a couple of things um, that were major, either turning points or major big time things that happened through a study of Romans. Um, So maybe you've heard of St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to say that. Um, But he grew up in a Christian home, a home where his mother was a Christian. She prayed for him. She shared the gospel with him. She encouraged him to be a Christian, and he didn't want to do that. Um, In fact, he was an academic, but he traveled along, and and he taught rhetoric. He taught logic. Um, He he lived a a pretty rough life in terms of kind of like a party-style life. Um, But when he was 32 years old, he came to the conclusion that he was not what God wanted him to be. So he began uh, by, in the corner of his yard, just crying and weeping and, and asking, what should he do? What does God want him to do? And he heard a voice that was like a child that said, take and read, take and read. Well, he believed that that was the voice of God telling him to read God's Word. So he went back in his house and he had something. It, you know, this is like in the 300s AD, so he did not have a book, but he had something. He began to open it and read, and it was the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. And he said at a certain point, his heart warmed. He realized he didn't have to read any further. He just had to trust God. And so Augustine became one of the great early church leaders um, to, to say that he was known for teaching something or, 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 or saying something. You can't do that because he taught so much and he spoke on so many different issues. One of the things that Augustine dealt with is that there were lots and lots and lots of false teachers in the church at that time. And he kind of helped to, to present the, the orthodox or the, the single message of the church. Um, so he really helped to kind of establish that. Um, a hundred years later, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was charged with teaching the Scripture. He didn't even view himself really as a teacher. He was charged with teaching the Scripture, and so he was going to teach the book of Romans. Well, at that time, you really had to walk the party line of what the Catholic Church said the Bible means, but he got his hands on it in the original Greek and began to study it. And before you know it, he's preaching about a kind of salvation that doesn't come from the church, but it comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we now call that the Protestant Reformation, and it was one of the most impactful changes that the church ever made. That, that is where Protestantism comes from. It changed literally the whole world at that time because the Catholic Church was the only accepted version of Christianity. Anything else, and you were persecuted, and then the Protestant Reformation happens, and it begins to change all those ideals, and it opened up the door for great thinkers that would eventually make things like America possible. There would be no America without the Protestant Reformation. There would be no free countries. Um, Most likely, you wouldn't have people thinking in in terms of human rights if you did not have uh, the Protestant Reformation. It is a very big deal. Um, But we could go on and on about the different revivals and things that have occurred from the Protestant Reformation, or from the the study of, of, of Romans in general. But the truth is, as we open this study... Let's take it as if it's the first time we've studied it. Let's look at it as if we don't know anything about it. Let's look at it as if Augustine never wrote commentaries and Martin Luther never wrote commentaries and John Calvin never wrote commentaries or even in this day the people that have written commentaries that would be modern. Let's take it as if we are studying, as we are listening to the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the Romans. And so that's going to be the goal is let's just open it and begin to study it. Now, we know that this was written by Paul, the guy that we read about in Acts, the guy that wrote the other letters. 
There have been people in the past that said maybe it wasn't Paul, but nobody takes him seriously. This is as much Paul as anything is. Uh, and we know that it was written to the church in Rome. Another thing that we know is that Paul didn't know the people in Rome. He knew some people in Rome, but he didn't know the people. He didn't necessarily know very many of the people in this church. Um, some people ask, how did the, the, the church in Rome even be, a th how was it established? Because Paul had not reached it. Uh, most of the other apostles at this time were focused in Israel. They weren't necessarily focused in, 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 in global missions. So how did it happen? The best explanation I can find is that there was actually um, Jews and Jewish proselytes that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles, they went out and they began to preach. Um, it says that 5,000 were saved and then a few thousand later, and it just kind of compounded that way. And it seems like maybe some of these Jews and proselytes were from Rome. They received the, the gospel. They received the Holy Spirit. They were discipled by the early apostles. And then they went back home to Rome, and there they established a church. That seems to be the most likely way that this happened. So then you ask yourself, if Paul doesn't know these people, uh, why is he writing a letter to them? Well, Paul is always focused on the mission. He's focused on what is next. And for him, one of the things that's next is expanding the mission. He actually had visions of going to Spain. And so when he writes to the Romans, one, he's definitely introducing himself in his gospel, uh, making sure that everybody knows what he's teaching even before he gets there. But he's probably also trying to develop a relationship with them so that they could be a new launching point for him to go even further. Most New Testament scholars believe he did make it as far as Spain. Now, when you think about in the first century, um, you, you got to look up what boats looked like. you got to look up what travel was like. you got to look up what the world was like and how difficult it would have been to go from one place to another. And you take a guy that was, was you know, an Israelite. He, he spent time in Jerusalem. He spent time in Tarshish and Antioch and places over there in the Middle East to think that this man may have traveled all the way to Spain sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ after having traveled previously to kill people that were talking about Jesus. This is a guy that lived quite a life. And so maybe it was also reaching out to the church at Rome, preparing them to kind of be the launching pad for that ministry as well. So what we do know is that Paul wrote this letter and it explains the very essentials of Christianity, what we need to know about being a Christian. Um, uh, not quite a hundred years ago yet, but a good long while ago, there was a man named C.S. Lewis that wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And it was just that. It was an explanation of what is essential, what is, what is necessary for Christianity. And, and this book of Romans is that for Paul. It is what you must know as a Christian. It is his gospel. It is what you must know. It is what the church must know. And so that's what we have before us. He wrote it somewhere between 54 and 59 AD. Most likely it was some of the time that he spent in Greece um, that he wrote it. So that means that he might have been sitting in the church of Corinth, which, you know, they have their own greatest hits. But he might have been sitting there in the church of Corinth and he sent this letter to the Romans at that time. He was preparing to go to Jerusalem. He had collected a, a, an offering from all the, 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 what you would call at that time, the European churches. He was bringing it to Jerusalem to give uh, to that church because it had fallen on really hard times. Um, but what we know is that when he got there, the Jews pretty much had an ambush set up for him. Uh, he was arrested, and so he wanted to go to Rome. Well, we find out that he does get to go to Rome, and Caesar pays for it because he's, he's arrested and he appeals to Caesar. So that's how he makes it to Rome. But when he writes this letter, he doesn't know how he's getting there. 
He just believes that he is, and he's praying that he's going to get there. And so that brings us to this. So we will look at the introductory verses of this letter today, the first 15 verses, um, and immediately we will see what drove Paul to travel so far in service of the gospel. Okay, so the sermon in a sentence is one of the shortest I've ever written. Any true gospel ministry is focused outwardly on the lost. As we read this, I think that's going to be what we see, is, is that, that Paul was focused on sharing that gospel. That was his calling, it was what God put on his life, and that was what he was working towards doing. So, let's begin uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. And, you know, one of the reasons that I was praising God so much this morning is um, there are no names except Paul. I can say Paul. I can say Paul a bunch of times. And so that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. All of these are words that I should be able to pronounce. So let's read it. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I, might, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay, so first we're going to break this up into two points only. Paul and his gospel and then the apostles' prayer. So first, Paul and his gospel. And as we begin to study this letter, we see that Paul briefly introduces himself, but he cannot describe himself without immediately proclaiming the gospel. That's just who he is and how he introduces himself. So he says, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So before he finishes the first sentence about who he is, he's already talking about the gospel. Now he says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And, and that word in the original language, actually, if you, if you use it in the Greek sense, it has to do with like the lowest form of slave. So not like a, a house servant or like a, a professional, because in Rome, some slaves were as like doctors and lawyers. Like they were, they were educated, they were kind of high-profile people, they just were slaves instead of free. But then there were also menial labor-type slaves. This is the word that Paul uses, but if you actually look further back, the way that the Hebrews use that word refers to people like Moses. 
um, and Abraham and David. So it refers to people who were just absolutely faithful uh, following after God. They gave him complete allegiance. It was an honorific. It was like a title, like many other titles that we might have, Mr. or Mrs. or Master. Well, Servant of God was one of those honorific titles. And so when Paul says this, he says, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Throughout all of Paul's teaching, one thing we see is that he believes every Christian is called. Paul, specifically, was called to be an apostle. Now, when we think about calling... There, there is a way that we say Jesus is calling, he's tenderly calling. We have a song um, where Jesus is calling to us, he is, he is drawing us to him. But as a Christian, once we have become believers in Jesus Christ, this calling is more like marching orders. This calling is what we are to be doing. And so while Paul believes all Christians are called, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, he was specifically called to be an apostle. So his marching orders was to be an apostle. So it really deserves a little looking into what does this word apostle mean? Um, so when you look at it, the Hebrews had used this, the Israelites had used this word before the New Testament church was using it to, to refer to certain people. And, and these apostles of, of, the, of the Jewish religion were messengers from the Sanhedrin, but much more than that. They spoke with and acted with the authority of the Sanhedrin. They could marry. Um, that they, they, they could curse, they, they, they could perform any task that the Sanhedrin itself could, 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 could do, even judges and, 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 and passing sentences and things like that. So if they sent one um, from, from the Sanhedrin as an apostle, the best English word might be a proxy. Um, and a proxy speaks with the very same authority and power as the sender. And so if, if that is the meaning of this word apostle, because sometimes it just means one sent, um, but, but if that's the meaning of this word, and it's used as a title also, so it probably goes more back to the, to the Jewish way of thinking than the Roman way of thinking. So if that's the case, what Paul is saying is he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning that he is sent by Jesus to speak for and act for Jesus. In other words, this apostle, when he speaks, and we, have, I mean, we, we save it this way, when he speaks, he's speaking scripture. The deeds that he does, Jesus himself would have done the very same thing. So what we're seeing here is that, that Paul's saying, I am a messenger and I am a representative of Jesus Christ himself. Now, we might be used to that terminology, but we're probably not totally used to the idea that he is speaking as Jesus. He has the authority of Jesus as he acts in the office of apostle. Now, there are people that still claim to hold the office of apostle today. I would say probably not. Um, not, from the, not from the sense of, of what scripture means it here in, in a passage like this, um, because that seems to be a very special office that was ordained for the first, the beginnings of the church to establish the church. And then from there, you don't see a whole lot of apostleship after that particular point. So the apostles of Jesus were sent by Jesus to proclaim the words of Jesus and do the deeds of Jesus. So Paul was set apart for the gospel. That means um, that this was something God did to Paul, not something Paul did for himself. And so he's not saying, I set myself aside or I marked myself off as a gospel preacher. He says that God made him this way. God did this to him. He is set apart for the gospel because God made him this way. This is important. This is very important because when we think about the term set apart, that also applies to other believers. And so let's keep that in mind as well. So when we think about Paul being set apart for the gospel, this is what his role was. This is what his whole life was, was the gospel. We have to remember that as we go forward. Otherwise, Paul's actions don't really make sense. 
When we would go places with the kids when they were a lot younger, we don't say things like this anymore, um, but, you know, kids can have their own, well, they can be weird. And so typically, we, when we went places with the kids, we'd say, hey, don't let your weird out. You know, don't, don't, don't let that part out because these people can't handle that. We can handle it at home, but don't let your weird out. They can't handle it. And so Paul is letting his weird out right away. He is so fully committed to Jesus Christ that there is absolutely nothing else that matters to him in his life. You can read other passages that say the very same thing. So as Paul is introducing himself to the Romans, he is not in any way presenting himself as normal or presenting himself as just a cool guy you'll get along with. From the very beginning, he's got it dialed all the way up. I serve Christ and Christ alone. My whole life is about the gospel. My goal is to go and preach everywhere that I go. So he is not holding anything back. He is letting people know from the very beginning, this is what he's about. This is his work. This is his ministry. Now, I don't believe that that should be weird among Christians. I don't. I think that that should be all of us. Our focus, our aim. About Jesus. About the Lord. Not about ourselves. So much of what we see in Christianity today tends to be kind of people-centric. Not necessarily selfish, I'm not calling it selfish, but there's a lot of people-centric stuff that happens in Christianity. Paul was not for the people, he was for the gospel. When he says he does something, he does it for Christ's sake. Not for his sake, not for people's sake, and although there is, there is an aspect to that, but the goal is to share the gospel with people because of Jesus. So, as he goes forward, he talks about the gospel. And the gospel is something, he says, that's been promised from the Old Testament. So he mentions the ancient writers, the, the, the prophets, people like that. And so there are people that can read the Old Testament and never see Jesus in it. But Jesus himself had no trouble seeing his role based on the Old Testament. And so we need to be sure that when we're reading the Old Testament, we see Jesus in it as well, because these promises of the gospel come from that point. Now, the gospel, um, it, it is the gospel of the Son of God, so that, that's Jesus. Um, Paul identifies um, Jesus as both the descendant of David and the Son of God. And so when we think about it from the human perspective, Jesus was to be a king. He was from a royal line. So he was from that line. But that's not what gave him his authority. His authority, who he was, was based on he's the Son of God. And then even further on what he did. So a dead descendant of David isn't a Messiah. And it's certainly not a, a reason to rejoice. But what gave him the power, what revealed him as the Son of God, was the resurrection. That's what Paul points to, is the fact that, that he was resurrected. So he was not merely a, a human man that was then appointed to be the Son of God. And he wasn't really a gospel bringer until he died and rose again. That's when the gospel was truly born. That's when it began to take effect in the lives of people. And so what we have to understand as we look at this is that that's the gospel Paul is preaching. There were people who wanted to say that God, Jesus was only man, that he was not God, that he was selected at some point to be the representative, but he wasn't. 
Paul was addressing that right away. So he doesn't call it a false teaching, he just teaches the right thing. And also there were people who said Jesus was only God, that he was not man at all, he only appeared to be man, and he is addressing that as well because he's a descendant of David. Just like you can be a descendant of your grandfather, Jesus was a descendant of his grandfather. So he was human, but he was also God at the same time. So Paul is dealing with these things right away. And so Jesus was not merely a man appointed to be the Son of God, but he always was the Son of God. And at a certain point, God chose to reveal his choice of Jesus through the power of the resurrection. So Paul received his marching orders through Jesus Christ, which means that he was, a, he was uh, to go about preaching the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith. He believed that Jesus was sending him, that Jesus was telling him what to do, and that he should obey that. And then not only that, but what his message was, was to proclaim Jesus so that people would believe in Jesus, then they would be obedient and go out in faith and serve God. So for him, it was a cycle, whereas he is obedient, he has faith, he is obedient, he serves, then people will have faith, they'll be obedient, and they will serve. That's the picture that he believed, and that's the kind of ministry that he was setting up. So the scope of Paul's ministry, by the way, was all the nations. So the word that Paul keeps using is something that we might would say like ethnic groups. That's kind of where we get that original word from is, is from the ethnic groups. And a lot of times in your Bible it might translate it as Gentiles or whatever, almost like excluding the Jews from that. But the way Paul uses it is much more universal. In other words, he is the apostle to the world because Jesus was the Savior to the world. If he is sent in proxy of Jesus, then whatever Jesus was, that's what he's supposed to be. And so he believed that he was supposed to be the one sent to the world to share the gospel. And, you know, Paul didn't preach to every person that lived on the planet at that time. But I bet he would have if he could have. I bet he would have done everything in his power to do it. He did. He went as far as he could go, preached to as many people as he could, because he felt that that was his responsibility. He even says so much. I was obligated, or Paul was obligated, to preach the gospel for his own sake, and certainly uh, his message is one that can rescue the perishing, but the driving force behind his ministry is the honor and glory of Christ. So Paul knew that this was his obedience. This was his service to do what God told him to do. And he knew that that message would save people. But the driving force, the reason he's doing it, is for the glory of Jesus Christ, to make known who Jesus is to the world. So that's the important thing for us to remember. So he refers to the Romans as saints. Now that took on a technical term during the Catholic Church where people were canonized by the Pope, so then they became saints in kind of an official honorific sort of title, but that's not what this means here. These people are not saints because a Pope made them so. These people are not saints because they're really good Christians. These people are saints because God chose for them to be saints. God placed this church in Rome. Even if he used somebody whose name we would recognize, even if we went back in history, dug it up and said, oh, it was one of the disciples that went over to Rome and planted this church. God still planted this church. And so that's something that's important. And who knows who planted Macedonia North, but God planted Macedonia North. What people did God use? Somebody probably knows that answer, but God did it. And it is his work that continues to strive in this church. And so that's the perspective that Paul has on the church at Rome. So um, there are places where Paul says, I don't build on another man's work or another man's foundation, but he does go and minister to Rome. So you might say, well, he contradicted himself, but absolutely not. He is building on the work that God has started there. And that's what he is saying. And that is definitely how he views this. So Paul does have this traditional greeting. So in verse um, 7, the second half of it, um, he says, Grace to you and peace from God. I feel like I've explained this a bunch of times, so I won't major on it. 
Um, but it might be that people would think this was a politically correct greeting um, because the traditional Roman Greek way to greet people was kairos, grace, grace to you. It's like happiness. It's like joy, like have joy. Hey, have joy. We say, hey, how you doing? We don't want you to answer that question, honestly, but we say, hey, and, and, and then you're supposed to say, hey, and be happy that we spoke to you. Um, and that's kind of the traditional Roman or, or Greek greeting. Shalom, or peace, is the traditional Middle Eastern greeting. And so, so Paul says grace and peace, and, that's all, and some people would say, well, that he's just kind of combining both so that no matter who he's speaking to, they both feel like they've been greeted properly. Well, that's not it at all. Paul is actually taking these two traditional greetings and, and making them into a resolute theological statement. The statement is that we have both grace and peace, and it comes from God himself. In fact, those who are strangers of grace will also be strangers of peace. And that's the point that I believe Paul is making there is that grace comes and then peace comes into our life. So we have grace. We have grace through, through faith in Jesus Christ. Once we have that grace, once our sin debt is settled, then we can have peace with both God and man and the rest of the world. So just as Paul had been set apart for global, global missions, uh, believers in Rome had been set apart to proclaim Christ in that city. So that's immediately what Paul begins to think about is that they have a ministry in the city and this is something that God has given them. Now, it's not in, enough to understand that Paul identified himself by the gospel. He also defined other Christians in that very same manner. So when he thinks about other Christians as well, he thinks about them in terms of the gospel. In other words, when God saved a person they became part of his plan for sharing the gospel. So think about this for a moment as you sit here. When God saved you, you were part of his plan not only to, to be a recipient of the gospel, but to be a proclaimer of the gospel as well. For each and every one of us, that is, that is part of his plan. And that was certainly what Paul was thinking there. So the gospel ministry and the glory of Christ must be the driving force of everything that we do in our lives. And when I say we, I don't mean we as Macedonia North, I mean we as in us folks. In other words, everything I do, everything you do, everything we do, that needs to be the driving force. Not what can I get out of it, not how does this look, or what, how do I benefit from this, or is this going to make anybody mad, or, or, or any other kind of question that you might have, or any kind of thing that might hold us back. But what do we do to bring glory to the name of Christ? Because that is the point. We must bring glory to His name. So after the introductory type stuff, he, he basically says, here, here, here is him, um, and obviously the gospel, uh, but also I'm writing to the Romans, grace to you. So now we get into his prayer, because that's the next thing he does is he introduces his prayer. So the prayers of the apostles. <clears throat> so as we read the letters of Paul, we see that prayer is a regular part of his life and ministry. <clears throat> Almost all of his letters have, I pray always for you. The Galatians are a special case because he was really fired up when he wrote that one. But for the most part, when, when he's writing, he's talking about his prayer life, how he specifically prays for that church, and also many times how they should pray for him. So he prays for people regularly, and he asks them to pray for him as well. And this is not a selfish thing. Think about it. If Paul is doing what God wants him to do, and he is serving God, and that's all he's doing, that is his focus, then it's not selfish to say, well, will you pray for me as well because I'm trying to serve God. That is not selfish. That is actually very biblical. So this prayer begins with a note of thanksgiving um, for the witness of the Roman Christians which are being proclaimed around the world. This 
church doesn't have to have been large, right? So, so he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The Roman church doesn't necessarily have to be a big church. In, in fact, churches back then probably weren't big. There may have been a network of what we would call home churches now, and that may have been a larger network. Um, but what we have to understand is that it wasn't because this was a big church that they were being proclaimed all over the world. They were being proclaimed like this all over the world because even in Rome, Jesus the Lord was being proclaimed as the ultimate king. That's the important thing. So in Rome, you have to understand, this is in the height of Roman emperor worship. During this time, the Roman emperors were like deities to most people. They had emperor cults where they had to pinch incense and burn it for these emperors. Like It was a very big deal at this time that there, that, 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 the, there was not a higher power on earth than the emperor. But what Christians believe supersedes that of the emperor. The way that we view Jesus is higher than the emperor, and certainly the way that we view Jesus after he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, far beyond anything that this world has, far beyond anything that could compare in this world. And so, even if they were a small gathering of people, their faith and their testimony reverberated through the entire um, empire because they're in Rome. So even in Rome, people are speaking the name of Jesus. Now, what's really interesting about this is even in the secular historical records, we can see that there were disputes about Jesus in Rome. And, and, and probably it was Christians and, and Jews kind of disagreeing with each other. Um, but there's actual archaeological uh, evidence that people were talking about Jesus in Rome um, as, as early as the first century. So Paul had never been to Rome, um, but the full weight of his prayer life was focused on him eventually getting there. So what we see in his prayer is, I think it's very important for us to recognize um, a couple of things. One, he was sincere. He said, God as my witness. And so he is calling down God who knows him better than anyone else. Be a witness that yes, this is my earnest desire. This is my prayer. Um, he genuinely wanted to go to the imperial city. He genuinely wanted to go to Rome. Another thing is that his prayer was unceasing. He had been praying for a very long time to achieve this goal. But also his prayer was submissive because he talks about the will of God. He's been prevented, but he's waiting on the will of God to get there. So his prayer was submissive because he was willing to wait for God to get him there in the right way. So every believer wants the success in their prayer life that Paul had in his prayer life. But to obtain that, we also have to have his style. Look at how he prayed. One, he was sincere. So an insincere prayer. Um, two, he was unceasing. So a fleeting prayer. Just because you've asked God one time for something does not mean that, that that's what you're going to get. Paul asked for a long time. Unceasing prayer. And then prideful prayers. Prayers for what we want, not prayers submitted to the will of God. Those aren't heard or answered by the King of Glory. If we are going to be prayer warriors, we've got to get in line with the way that God wants to hear from us. Um, in Sunday school this morning, we, saw, we, we, were, we were looking at the 24 elders and they had these bowls uh, of the, the prayers of the saint. They poured it out. It was a fragrant aroma. There are probably prayers that have been prayed that don't smell too good. And we have to be aware of the fact that our prayers have to align with the Lord. You would not go to a king and just demand what you want and expect him to do it. You wouldn't even walk up to the president of these United States and demand what you want and expect him to do it. 
There might be some unhinged people that think that would happen, but that's not the way that you make requests to leaders. How would you speak to the Lord? Be careful. Think about it the way Paul thought about it. He made his request known. He prayed earnestly. He prayed sincerely. But he also prayed submissively toward the will of God. So Paul does give us a couple of reasons why he wants to go to Rome. He makes it kind of clear. Um, first of all, he wants to strengthen the Christians that were there. He says, I, I want to strengthen you. I want to impart something to you. And so when we think about um, Christian ministry, uh, all Christian ministry should be there to make believers strong. That's what he wanted to do. So he didn't just want to go and hang out with them. He didn't just want to go and, and see what maybe they could do for him. He wanted to strengthen them. That should be the goal of Christian ministry. The second thing is that he wanted to receive strength from the Romans. Christianity is a community, and we strengthen each other by our faith and obedience. If you are trying to live the Christian life alone, you are robbing yourself of a lot of the strength and power that God intended for us to have when we are together. Our shared victories, our shared faith, even the times that we have to struggle and the times that we have to really endure, all of that testimony as we bring it together, it is what gives us strength. And Paul knew that and he wanted that in his visit to the Romans as well. But also, he wanted a harvest from the nations. Paul expected there to be results. He expected his trip to be productive and a gospel ministry that does not expect to be productive will get exactly what it expects. In other words, we have to know that we are going to see results from God. We have to believe in Him that much. It's a lack of faith not to believe that God's going to do something. And we must believe that God is going to do something. So Paul closes this portion of the letter, the kind of the introductory part, by stating that he has an obligation to all people. When he says the words barbarian, uh, that was a sort of a technical term back then. Essentially, people that did not live within the scope of the Roman Empire were considered barbarians. So he's speaking the language of the Romans when he says this, and so the people that would have been in, in what we now know as Germany, even the people that would have been in what we now know as Spain and France, those kinds of areas, the Romans would have viewed them as barbarians at that particular time. And so Paul says everybody, Jews, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, everybody... He owes the gospel, and he expects a harvest among all of those people. So that is his obligation. That is what he expects to do. So he was eager to travel to the ends of the earth to obey the calling that God had placed on his life. And remember, this is not a calling where Jesus is saying, Hey, Adam, come do this. This is a calling of marching orders. This is what you will do. Now do it. So we have to understand God is the loving Father. He is the one that, that gave His Son to die for us so that we could be saved and, and be a part of His family. But He is also the eternal King. And so He will give orders, and we must obey those orders. So, it's important for us to remember that the Gospel imposes on all who receive it the debt of passing it to someone else. If you have received the Gospel, then it was because of a Gospel ministry. Whether that be an individual whether that be a church, whether, whether that be a group, whatever it is, if you receive the gospel, there is a gospel ministry associated to that. And when you came to Christ because of a gospel ministry, you received the obligation to be a part of a gospel ministry. God may not be calling you to be the apostle to the nations. He may not be telling you to go everywhere. You know, many missionaries today go to a place. Paul tried to go to all the places. 
But what we have to understand is that what God calls you to do is to share the gospel where he places you. He might place you in some other nation. He might place you in Vincent. He might place you right where you are. But where you are, you are obligated to share the gospel with people. That is the point. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to make clear from the very beginning. Here's what you get when you get Paul. You get somebody that's going to talk about the gospel. I can't even say my name. It's almost like his last name is gospel. He wants to make sure that everything about him is about the gospel. And so he makes that proclamation and makes it clear. So it is true that God has a unique plan for each of us, but it is clear that part of that plan is proclaiming the gospel to those around us. Each person's life is going to look different. Each person's life is, is, is going to have its own, not just flavor, but its whole own structure. And so don't look at other Christians and say, well, I'm not like them, so I must not be a good Christian. Or I don't do what they do, so I must not be a good Christian. And, and certainly don't look at them and say, they don't do what I do, so they may not be a good Christian. Definitely don't do that. We're good at that in America, but don't do that. What we need to do is look at what God wants for us. Where's God put you? What kind of ministry has he given you? And with that ministry, serve him, glorify him, honor him. That's the important thing. So in conclusion, the gospel is the greatest message that could ever be declared, and it is life to everyone who believes it. Paul received his life from the gospel. That was what made him work. It is what made him move. It is what made him serve. And it is what will drive us as well. He had preached the gospel for his sake because it was his responsibility. Again, calling, marching orders. It was what he was supposed to do. Um, he had preached the gospel for the sake of those who were being saved because without it they had absolutely no hope. But the driving force of his preaching was for the sake of Christ, to bring him glory. You see, when we love someone, we want to make that known. We want to make them known. We want to elevate them. And Paul's love for Christ meant that he needed to exalt Christ. And the best way he knew to exalt Christ was to proclaim the gospel so that Christ may save even more people. So we must remember that each Christian is responsible to proclaim the gospel. Now, I think this is important for every church to think about this. Without a true gospel ministry, none of us would have been saved. And we must ensure that that ministry continues so long as the Lord tarries. Every church is going to do different things, but every real church is going to have a gospel ministry, a ministry that is focused on people who are not yet believers. So, for individuals, we need to remember uh, and follow the example that Paul set by praying. Uh, his prayer was for opportunities to share the message of Jesus with anyone who would listen. And so that is an important part of our prayer life. Think about the last prayer that you prayed. Let's say the last prayer that you prayed that wasn't a blessing. So think about that. Not the last time you prayed over your food, but the last prayer that you prayed. What was the focus? Was the focus on you? You know, if some of you uh, were riding in the car and something didn't go right, the last prayer you prayed may have been, Lord, help us! You know, and the, the handle that they conveniently put there, the religious handle that you had, that may have been the last prayer that you prayed. And in that moment, that was the prayer you needed to pray. But think about making sure that our prayers are known because we're thinking about how to praise God and how to serve God, how to bring glory to His name. It is one thing for us to praise His name through song, lifting up our voices and declaring the greatness of God. That is important. That is part of it. That's part of it for the rest of eternity. But another part of it for the time that we have on this earth is to declare the gospel. That is worship. 
that is praise, and that's our obligation, both as a church and as individuals. So make sure that that's in your heart. Make sure that's on your prayers. Make sure that as you're looking to the Lord, you're looking for ways to serve Him by telling others about Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time to gather together. And as we look at a guy like Paul, everybody kind of has an opinion about him if they've studied. He, he did not reserve himself. He did not hold back from what was important to him. He made it clear from the very beginning what he was about. And Father, I ask that you help us in our own way, being uniquely who you've made us to be, let us also seek to be very clear with everyone what we are about. We know that you have made us in a special way, that each one of us is going to have a different life with, with different focus and all those kinds of things, but one common mission that we all have is to proclaim the gospel. Paul made it clear that that was his work, that that was his identity. And I pray that we will do the same, that we will live for the gospel, that we will proclaim the gospel, that we will share it with those who need to hear it. In a world where everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks their opinion matters, we do have truth. And I pray that you put it on our voices, make it the thing that we go to over and over again as we talk to people. Because there is no other message that carries the weight. There is no other message that can save lives. And there is no other message that you have commanded each and every one of us to declare. And so I pray that we can do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.